Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to Books and Critical Theory. On this episode, I'm talking to Dr. Clea Bourne from the University of London Goldsmiths about her new book, Trust, Power and Public Relations in Financial Markets, which is published by Routledge. Welcome to Books and Critical Theory. On this episode, I'm talking to Dr. Clea Bourne, who is a lecturer in public relations, advertising and marketing at Goldsmiths, the University of London, about her new book, Trust, Power and Public Relations in Financial Markets. So welcome to the podcast. Hi, Dave. How are you? Yeah, I'm good, thanks. Um, and I'm all the better for having read this book, which, um, slightly unusually for an academic book, is a book that I'm really glad someone has written, given you know kind of how important financial uh, markets and financial services are to contemporary society. It's really great to have a readable, straightforward guide to partially how they work, but also the role of of PR marketing and this idea of trust in them as well. So it's so a well done. Thank you. Um, yes, I, I'm, I'm hoping, you know, it's been 10 years since the financial crisis um, and we're probably due for another one very soon. That's certainly the way that many economists see it. So it, this material doesn't stop being timely. Yeah, exactly that actually. And it's, you know, a very kind of readable, really straightforward introduction as well that, you know, um, actually deals with the point of, you know, why these things are so complicated and, and the role of, I guess, kind of telling stories in some ways to make them transparent, but in other ways to make them more complicated, um, which is, is really fascinating. Um, I guess to kick off with, the, the kind of interesting question is is where the book came from. So, you know, you, you've been involved in PR for the financial sector, um, and I'm quite interested to hear about that, but also, uh, I guess, kind of what, what motivated you to write the book as well? Yes, yeah, so well, certainly I spent more than 20 years working in PR, but also uh, at points in advertising and marketing and, uh, as well. And that entire career was shaped by financial markets. Um, I started off in Jamaica uh, just as a wave of market liberalization was reshaping the entire economy across the Caribbean. It was a very exciting time. Um, Not just because the economy itself was opening up, but because there were scores of financial institutions starting up or expanding their remit. Uh, And there was so much to do, so much to learn uh, in the ensuing years. But it all came crashing down during the 1990s, during a domestic financial crisis that sent the entire Jamaican economy spiraling further into debt. And the economy really has never recovered and then fast forward to the year 2000 when I moved to Britain, and and that relocation was just in time to witness a string of financial scandals in the UK market, including the massive collapse of equitable life. And I was struck by the similarity between equitable life and similar financial institutions I'd worked with in Jamaica, because these were institutions that were so lauded, so trusted, 
they were unequaled in their corporate reputation and it really seemed as if they could do no wrong. And yet these pinnacles of trustworthiness collapsed entirely and in the process, they actually spread mistrust across the entire financial sector. The last few years that I spent working in public relations in London were entirely shaped by the global financial crisis. And once you've worked in markets long enough, it is very frustrating to see the same cycles of behavior repeat themselves. Because before that particular crisis happened, I'd been working with many financial experts who were worried about warning signs and they were sounding the warning signs themselves. I actually helped write or place articles about these warning signs and arrange interviews to discuss them with financial journalists. And I'm not saying that more of that activity would ever have prevented a crisis, but certainly there were many people who could see the signs coming. And at the same time, I don't think that you could say that public relations led the way in causing financial crisis. But I do feel very strongly about the pattern of behavior that the PR industry tends to exhibit. Because after every corporate reputational crisis, the PR industry actively promotes its skills in restoring trust because it's good for business. This is how you pick up new clients. This is how you expand your remit with existing clients. But the question is whether it's good professional practice. Because considering that the PR industry has never truly examined its own contribution to financial crisis in the first place, I wonder that they feel they have the mandate or indeed the warrant to offer their services in restoring trust to corporations. I mean, there's so much in there that I could could ask you about, you know, even just as a kind of ground clearing exercise. But I guess the big thing is, what are we kind of talking about here? What... What is this this idea about PR as a kind of a, as you describe it in the book, a, a trust strategist? Yes. Um, and what are the kind of like different varieties of trust that PR is involved in in producing and and creating, and and I, and I guess kind of defending its role by telling these stories as well. Well, if we look at finance in particular, uh, this this is a, an industry that promotes itself as a business of trust to begin with. Uh, finance is a huge activity. It's a global activity and it encompasses all the ways that society arranges to use money and other assets. And one of the most important arrangements in finance is extending credit. And as many other people have pointed out before, credit is, is a world that, word that has genesis and ideas of faith and trust. So if you look at some of the oldest financial brands, you'll see that they deliberately chose names to suggest trustworthiness. And this this would have happened long before we officially referred to professions like marketing and PR. So if you think about names like Prudential and Guardian, Equitable and Fidelity and, and Guarantee, those are names that are deliberately chosen to evoke trust. And nowadays, there's a need for trust in financial markets more than ever before because of the nature of modern financial assets. We're talking about assets that are often electronic and invisible, and they're able to travel anywhere in the world in a matter of seconds, which makes us as customers and as taxpayers particularly vulnerable to those who are supposed to be looking after our money. So that brings me on to the next bit of your question, which is, what is a trust strategist? And why is it associated with the PR industry? Now, 
I haven't actually seen anyone produce a, a business card that says trust strategist on it. And, and let's be thankful for that. <laughs> but but there are a number of consulting professions who offer their services in managing trust and reputation. I'd include in the list um, human resources consultants, management consultants. But it's really the public relations industry that has run away with this idea and made it their own. Um, so if there's anyone who... who that term trust strategist is associated with. It's probably the late Al Golin, who died just this year, actually. Um, he founded one of the world's best known PR firms. Uh, he coined this term trust strategist. His firm actually used the strapline building trust work worldwide for a very long time. I've come across many other PR firms that use the word trust in their slogans. And if there is one firm that has really indelibly become associated with this idea of trust exp expertise, it's probably Edelman, uh, which is the global PR firm that puts out the annual trust barometer, which claims to measure trust levels worldwide. And the book certainly demonstrates my skepticism about BR PR's claims as experts on trust, because in my view, really what this is about is this ongoing struggle within the PR industry for power and status as consultants to clients. Um, and this has become truer in the 21st century more than ever before because PR is now competing with management consultants and HR consultants for managing a corporation's reputation. So the bottom line for me and, and a big motivation for writing this book in the first place is my view is that if the PR industry is going to embrace this role of trust strategist, then it first needs to develop a deeper understanding of who really builds trusts in financial markets and how those trust practices are enacted every day. I don't think it's good enough for PR firms to supposedly measure public levels of trust from year to year, uh, because whether we trust a corporation or not has nothing to do with whether a corporation is actually trustworthy. One of the things I found really useful for kind of navigating um, through the, the different practices that PR is involved in was, was this idea of a, of a trust practice framework, um, yes. which, which I think you get into in the, in the second chapter. And, and that I found really interesting because you, you detail the different, I guess, kind of strategic stories that PR has to tell. Um, it's not just, you know, a kind of a wholesale, um, we will, you know, help your your company become trustworthy. It's about protecting, uh, guaranteeing, aligning, making visible, and crucially simplifying as well the role of various um, actors in in financial services. So, so I wonder if you could sketch, you know, perhaps not all of them, but you know, give a flavour of the kind of the varieties of trust practice that PR is involved in. Yes, of course. Well, I certainly want to to talk particularly about the first one because they are set out in, in order of power and influence. And the first trust practice is actually protecting, which might surprise people a bit because you'd think I'd start with transparency, but I don't. And I'll explain why. The need to trust in the first place is the very thing that makes us vulnerable. And when it comes to our relationship with financial markets, it's the safety of our money and our assets that makes us vulnerable. So we trust our banks and investment houses to protect our money. And we might not give it any thought at all, but we certainly trust our central bank to guard the national currency. These are concrete responsibilities. 
And for this reason, when I've broken down trust practices, I point out PR's relationship with every one of them. And when it comes to what, in my view, is the most powerful trust practice, PR just cannot make any claim to be close to the activity of protecting money. And this is the number one reason I think that PR should be very wary about claiming proximity to trust. But just to look at some of the other trust practices to go down the line, uh, the second one is guaranteeing. And if you're a financial institution, that includes keeping your promises to customers. Guarantees are also implicit in the endorsements that financial institutions seek from other bodies. So we're talking about things like seals of approval and rating systems. There's so many rating systems these days. Well, PR can promote these sorts of guarantees as part of their job, but they're not actually in the position to offer guarantees in the first place. So again, their claim to being, you know, the experts on trust becomes questionable again. I also talk more in the book about aligning, uh, which I suppose, you know, the short way of thinking about aligning is finding a trustworthy group to hang out with. You know, in financial markets, that might be your industry body, for example. Um, but then we come to transparency and transparency actually lists fourth on the list. Because I found repeatedly in researching the book that as long as financial institutions do a good job of protecting assets, clients are actually quite satisfied for them to remain completely opaque about how they do it. Uh, you know, take an industry like wealth management, for example. Clients are actually paying the company to be as opaque as possible. So really, opacity becomes uh, a, a value, a thing to trade. But assuming you're not in the market for a wealth manager, which most of us aren't, and your daily world involves dealing with a bank or an insurance company, it's so often the case that no matter how transparent these financial co companies say they are, we always seem to catch them out on something. Um, for example, it's very difficult to compare current accounts from bank to bank or try figuring out how a fund manager actually charges fees. It's something quite difficult to do. So while the PR industry itself makes a great deal of hay about transparency as a way of building trust, in fact, PR actually is used to build opacity as well as building transparency. And if it does more of opacity than it does of transparency, I'm afraid that's not really an effective way of building trust at all. Uh, simplifying that the last one um, is the one where I really think PR can position itself uh, to claims as a trust expert, because it's absolutely a useful way that they can help to break down some of the complexity about financial products and services, especially in really big mature markets where there are so many financial providers. The, the provider who has the ability to simplify a product offering can actually win trust. But the interesting thing in the largest markets, though, if you look around, is that it's not usually the financial providers doing the simplifying. It's usually some other kind of organization, maybe a consumer organization. Uh, the media plays a big role in helping to simplify financial products. Uh, you'll, you'll find a customer champion will arise every once in a while who will talk about how we as consumers are being ripped off. And PR helps to support these groups as well. Uh, financial communication would probably be much worse off if there weren't. PR people pleading with companies to be clear about what they sell. But I think we've all had everyday experiences where we would argue things are just still too complex. You, you've 
set up really neatly the kind of uh, the second half of the book there by gesturing towards a couple of the case studies you get into from nation states through um, rather we might call questionable PR practices, banking, and then into you know the kind of everyday consumer practices um, that make up, as you say, most people's interactions with with the financial world. So I wonder if we could start, as you describe in the book, kind of at the top in terms of state finance. Um, and I guess the question here is, how does PR kind of create credit-worthy, almost sort of national brands um, for nation-states? Okay, well, one of the first and most important things to bear in mind about financial markets is that governments are both the biggest customers in global financial markets as well as the biggest suppliers. They promote all sorts of products that most of us would rather not think about, um, bonds and treasury bills and certificates of deposit, and of course, our currency. And we're talking about very, very big business. Public finance is worth trillions. And it's not just states, uh, it's local government, it's regional government that are interested in raising money. Here in Britain, the National Health Service, for example, is re recently featured in the media because they're considering raising capital through hedge funds. Uh, so PR has long played a role in promoting government's ability to borrow and repay debts. Uh, we know, for example, that one well-known PR professional played a, played a big part in promoting loans for Poland and Romania and France after World War II. But today, government... Uh, finance has become a PR machine, a very, very well-oiled one. There are PR marketing professionals who help to organize investor presentations for governments, usually have debt management units these days. And these investor presentations are a bit like the beauty parades that companies engage in, where you head in and you talk to global investors about how much your country has going for it and what sorts of plans the country has for future growth. Um, other activities would include things like organizing conferences for global investors, putting articles into the sort of media that they would read, um, issuing monthly bulletins and advertisements to promote all of your new and exciting debt issues. These are all the kinds of things that you would expect to see PR doing at the state level and just the sort of activity that you see PR doing for public listed companies, say, in the stock markets. But the really interesting thing um, that people can look out for when it comes to how PR helps states to build their financial brand is the role of the central bank and particularly the governor of the central bank as, as the communicator in chief. A central bank governor in the 21st century needs to be a supreme communicator because his job is to stand up for the national economy, his or her job, and by extension, the national currency. In a way, central bank governors are, are a bit like the rock stars of, of public finance. <laughs> They're very quiet and sedate rock stars. But that's really their role. And PR spends a lot of time building the cult of central bank governors wherever they may be. So it's a very, very active area of financial PR activity. It's just it tends to happen below the radar for those of us who are not paying attention to what goes on in this world of, of bonds and treasury bills and quantitative easing. That, I guess, I mean, may, maybe I'm mischaracterizing this, but that's a story of what we might think of as quite legitimate PR practices. But you contrast 
this, I, I think, in the next chapter, which discusses financial trade associations with more uh, what we might call questionable um, PR practices, particularly around things like mis-selling um, and essentially kind of bad behaviour. So I, I wonder what, what's the contrast there with, you know, financial trade associations and, and the, the rather questionable role of PR? I, th I think the contrast is is absolutely spot on because where I find in public finance, often the role of public relations is to present stability and smoothness, almost almost the sense that there's nothing to see here. With financial trade associations, I found no matter where I looked at financial trade associations, whether it was a wholesale market or the retail market, often their job was to go to battle. They're very milita military in their approach to PR, particularly when a market becomes very protect protected, uh, when governments start threatening regulation, and when markets become increasingly competitive. So trade associations, and this, this is true of all markets, they are really full-time PR vehicles because, first of all, they're using internal PR to build cohesion amongst their members so that they all sing from the same hymn sheet, if you will. They're also very busy behind the scenes engaging in a particular kind of PR known as lobbying. So they're lobbying policymakers all the time. But they also use all sorts of promotional techniques to defend their boundaries and protect the status quo. Um, and as I said, when markets become highly competitive or an under threat in some way, that's when you really see them becoming very militant and engaging in all sorts of questionable behavior to defend their turf. So I found particularly um, in the years of the global financial crisis and in the aftermath, if you look at a market such as London, which really still is uh, the world's most international financial center, I found that trade associations actually spent very little time building trust at all. In fact, quite the opposite. What I found with a lot of tr financial trade association public relations was that they spent a lot of their time building mistrust, either in a particular government or in a competing area of financial markets. And a very good example of that would have to be the hedge fund industry which has plateaued a little bit recently, but remains a very, very large and powerful industry with a great deal of influence over all areas of financial markets. Uh, during the financial crisis, they launched a full-scale PR battle against the EU. Uh, the EU at the time was very keen to see the hedge funds industry's power and influence curtailed. And Every time the EU brought new legislation against the hedge fund industry, the hedge fund industry ramped up its PR. And one of the interesting things that they did in their battle was to pit UK policymakers against EU policymakers, stoking mistrust in the EU and trust in the UK. And I guess you could say the hedge fund industry won that battle. But the success of that campaign, I find, is a really useful reminder of the anti-EU sentiments that are running through all levels of British society, because there has been a discussion in Britain about anti-EU sentiments being driven by fears of migration, etc. But if you dig down into financial markets, you will find that anti-EU sentiment is alive and well amongst financial elites. So this is one of the very typical uh, sorts of antagonistic measures that are used in financial uh, markets. They, they have plenty of 
support from public relations, not to build trust, but to, to build mistrust. That's really interesting, yeah, in, in, in the sense of resisting possible regulations. I guess we're, we're going to kind of continue our journey sort of from, from nation down, you know, maybe to, to individual through stories of stock markets. And, and I quite like the idea, um, as, as, as you actually done, um, the fifth chapter, stock market storytelling. Because, um, you know, PR is, is as, as the book indicates, you know, really bound up with telling particular tales, you know, some anti-regulation in favour of, of institutions, others seemingly in favour of, of consumers. And I wonder if you could tell me a bit about maybe two key players in the, the PR story of stock markets, CEOs and shareholder activists, which I think, again, provide quite a nice contrast in the fifth chapter. Yes, well, stock markets are the area of finance that people are probably most likely to talk about, uh, which is completely understandable because this is where all the excitement is. And yet it's ironic because stock markets are actually completely dwarfed by other areas of capital markets. But as I said, these are, this is the part of finance. This is filled with thrill and excitement. And it's also filled with rumor and speculation and adventure and exploration and discovery. And PR helps to craft all of these stories. But because stock market activity is so uh, perennially linked with speculation and short-term trading, you'll find that stock market stories are not as bound up in efforts to build and create trust, except in one particular area. And that that is in the area where companies are interested in building their relationship with analysts who write about company performance, the media who cover that performance, and the kinds of investors who are looking to build value over the long term. We're talking about investors like pension funds, um, mutual funds, and of course, those of us who as individuals are saving for a rainy day. For these groups of investors who are interested in the long term, trust matters. So PR helps to unlock the value uh, of these companies by crafting stories about maybe when a new company floats on the stock market, for example, or quarterly results or new styles of investment and, and new market trends. And one of the long-standing roles of public relations and stock markets is embodying company trust in the form of the chief executive. So the chief executive is really the company's chief storyteller. And the most effective chief executives are also exceptionally good at strengthening trust by personalizing the company through their own sort of personal cult. There are really some very good examples of this. Uh, a supreme example is probably Warren Buffett, the head of Berkshire Hathaway, who, who's in his 80s and yet, you know, he's still going and his company's reputation is completely bound up in the reputation of the man that is Warren Buffett. Or consider another very different kind of individual as a chief executive, but I'd certainly include in the group someone like Martin Sorrell from WPP. Both of these men, Warren Buffett, Martin Sorrell, Martin Sorrell, have worked with numbers all their lives, and they are consummate storytellers at the same time, which is an incredible combination. But one of the things that has changed for the, for the chief executive of the public company in the 21st century is the level of shareholder activism that they're dealing with, because this has made the job of running the public company rather a bit like warfare. 
Shareholder activists come in many forms. Um, they can include not-for-profit organizations, the kinds of organizations who are maybe buying company shares so that they can have a voice in pressing companies to operate more ethically, to behave better, not to take advantage of, of child labor, for example, not to take advantage of, of minerals and resources in developing countries. And, and people have generally looked very kindly on this kind of activism as a good thing in financial markets. But there's another kind of shareholder activism that has become very, very widespread. And that is activism by uh, short-term investment interests, including hedge funds, including arbitrage experts, who are busy looking at things like discrepancies in a lagging share price. And these kinds of investors are quite happy to wage an all-out war against a company by building mistrust in chief executives, building mistrust in the people who are leading the company's operations and mounting shareholder revolts. All shareholder activists these days tend to use PR uh, to support their campaigns against company. So it's difficult for the PR industry to come down on the side of good and ethical, trustworthy corporate behavior, because when it comes to any battle taking place in the stock market, you can find PR activity representing all sides of that battle. Speaking of social battles, banking. Now, obviously, banking is, is a kind of prime site for political discourse and, and, and has been uh, in, you know, in the States, in the UK, uh, across Western Europe since the financial crisis. And again, you know, we're, we're sort of picking on, up on themes that you've been gesturing towards. For example, um, that idea of promoting particular CEOs as kind of sensible, wise, you know, innovative investors, these kind of things. So how, how has PR been involved in, um, I was going to say developing, but, but, you know, really it's a question of kind of restoring trust in banks and the banking sector. Well, it's amazing that the banking sector is still really front page news, even though we are nearly a decade away from the global financial crisis. New scandals are still emerging about the banking sector almost weekly. Um, when it comes to PR since the financial crisis, there's little doubt that the banks really got off on the wrong foot in the first place. And in the early days of the crisis, they were notable for their failure to apologize and take responsibility. And I think that approach backfired spectacularly for them. And I suspect that it, they did this against the advice of many of their very seasoned PR advisors. Because what happened after that is that you started to notice banks mounting full-scale trust restoration campaigns, all of which seemed to talk about the customer, which I find very interesting because... If banking hadn't been centered around the customer before, I wonder how it could suddenly become centered around the customer now. Uh, the problem with these particular trust rest restoration campaigns, though, is that there are plenty of financial companies um, serving people who have heaps of money, uh, people you know, who are not so worried about the state of the banking sector at the moment. Um, if you look at some of these campaigns, you'll find banks talking about their customer charters, mounting lifestyle campaigns. There's one bank I could think of that has spent the last few years running a campaign to get senior citizens on the Internet yep, yep. Um, and helping young people to learn skills to help them in the job market, which is a bit befuddling for people who think, well, what does that have to do with banking? 
but as I said, you know, it, it is a befuddling approach. Um, and I think that's because there's a lot more going on with the banking sector at the moment because of the big changes that are afoot. So what I talk about a great deal in that particular section of the book is that banking as we know it has ceased to exist for quite some time now. And banks stopped making their profits off things like savings, savings accounts and current accounts. I mean, a low interest rate regime, it's very difficult to make profit there anyway. But actually more worrying for the banking sector is the fact that all sorts of digital companies have begun to disrupt the banking business model. The way that electronic payments are made, for example, and you'll have heard talk about um, electronic systems such as Bitcoin. So at the moment, we're looking at a banking sector that is scrambling to decide what they're going to do next. And in a way, much of the public relations that they're running at the moment is a placeholder and really nothing more. These are ads and PR campaigns that are talking about banking as we think it is, as we think we knew it, when actually banks are doing very, very different things these days. So what they're doing is mounting campaigns as a facade. And behind the scenes, they're desperately trying to decide what sorts of banks are going to be for the rest of the 21st century. So in a way, you can disregard almost everything that banks are telling you in their PR and marketing right now, because that is not what is going on behind the scenes. And this story comes up uh, again later in the book with this idea of PR as being something that keeps things or aspects associated with finance invisible, silent, you know, hidden, uh, essentially kind of occludes the internal workings um, of, of, you know, institutions that make lots of money, but I guess are you know, moderately fearful about the future. But before we think about that, there is one one thing I'm, I'm quite interested in um, to hear about which is a fascinating and, you know, um, electric, rip-roaring world of insurance, which um, the seventh chapter, I think, is really, really great, actually, on this, which tells the story of how PR effectively, and again, you've gestured towards this about things like stock market flotations, but, you know, makes a really quite technical area, um, particularly, you know, the, the kind of the ways insurance operates in terms of making decisions about um, costings and, and payouts, making this, you know, kind of boring technical area newsworthy and, you know, something that kind of um, is involved in, in some cases, kind of, you know, headline, uh, headline news at the same time as things like uh, new forms of, you know, technical decision making coming to light and, you know, the kind of like transformations that are associated with algorithms and, um, and computerized decision making. So I'm really, really keen to hear how uh, how PR makes insurance interesting. <laughs> well, I have a soft spot for the PR professionals who work in this sector because they truly have to love insurance and enjoy working for it um, to survive. Because unlike the stock markets, the world of insurance is not, strictly speaking, a place of excitement and adventure, as you suggested. Uh, their job is to promote all of the five trust practices that I laid out in the book. If you work in PR and insurance, you're all about promoting an insurer's ability to protect your assets, uh, the guarantees that they offer, how they align with trust codes in society, how they offer transparency, which is not necessarily a forte for this sector, and how they attempt to simplify their incredibly dense jargon. 
but beyond that, there are other problems, you see, because one insurance company looks very like another. So in really large competitive markets, if you work in PR, your job is going to be to try to align insurance companies with the anxieties and the aspirations of the middle classes and particularly the over 50s. So it's trying to find compelling human interest stories to tell about these companies that are the original risk managers, if you will. So one of the techniques that I find is particularly popular in, in terms of building trust in an insurer as a, a, a company that aligns with your interests as a customer is the use of the survey that creates some sort of story about things that we may happen to be worrying about. And even since I wrote the book, uh, one of the trends that I've noticed recently is trying to find a headline that includes the term millennial. That seems to be your guaranteed route to achieving visibility these days for whatever it is that you do. And I was just looking at some of the media stories uh, put out by one very, very large insurer um, with the headlines that millennials are apparently less likely to know how to boil an egg or change a light bulb or cook a meal without following a recipe, <laughs> which makes you wonder if you, if you dig down into that kind of story and realize that it's from a, a PR survey sponsored by an insurance company, you think, how does that link with insurance? Yeah, how, how does that link with insurance? <laughs> the, the tenuous link there is with home insurance, because these are all activities taking place within the home. Presumably, if the boiled egg goes wrong, who knows? It yeah. could start a fire, I suppose that's the suggestion there. And this might feel, you know, it might seem very innocuous and completely humorous. But beneath that, I find there's something really quite worrying about the sorts of stories that uh, PR often aligns financial institutions with, because it tends to add to a particular kind of divisiveness in society. Because really what we're doing here is is picking on millennials, poking fun at them, because supposedly millennials are they, which means we, the other side of the, the debate, are not millennials. Um, somehow we're supposed to be older, uh, very likely the parents of millennials, because really one of the things that marks the divide between these two generations is that parents of millennials are homeowners. They have mortgages, whereas almost every day in the media you can find an article talking about how challenged millennials are by finances. They can't afford to get on the housing ladder. So they don't have a mortgage. They don't have many of the things that their parents have. So these sorts of stories are aligning insurance companies with one sector of society, quite possibly to the detriment of younger generations coming up. And I, you know, you have to ask, how does that store up trouble for the future? Um, the other thing you were you were talking about was uh, the increased uh, digitalization, I suppose, of, of the insurance sector. Um, interestingly, insurers and banks really have always been early adopters of technology. You know, financial ma markets are always way ahead of other sectors in adopting anything that's new. And one of the things that's new and much talked about these days is uh, the rise of the robot. And when financial institutions talk about robots, they are not talking about bipedal, sort of humanoid-looking robots speaking in jerky <laughs> terms. What they're really talking about is an algorithm that lives in your iPad. 
And these algorithms are much more sophisticated than they used to be, which means that they can offer us uh, decisions, decision trees that are much more minute and nuanced and, and seem to learn different things about us. So what in the world does that mean for financial products? It means uh, for people who are investing, for example, with maybe a mutual fund, instead of having to sit in laborious face-to-face -face interviews where they talk to you about your risk profile and your objectives for the future, etc., you can just do that on a computer these days. The computer will prompt you to ask, quest answer questions about yourself, which will guide you down a particular route to picking a particular kind of fund. Uh, so this and customers are really engaged with this sort of thing because they become so used to dealing with computers for other sorts of transactions. They're completely used to using computers to do their banking now, uh, completely used to using computers to order things from Amazon, for example. So really, the next step was going to be some of the relationships that we considered to be personal, talking to a financial advisor, for example. People are now actually quite happy to have these conversations with the computer. Um, and I, I rather suspect that there are many customers out there who much prefer having that conversation with the computer because it feels less intrusive, you know, rather than sitting down in someone's office and, and revealing all the things, all the personal details of your life. Worrying to think, though, that all of these personal details are now being stored in somebody's database. Yeah, and, and, the, and this, this is really intimately connected with other kinds of financial practice that PR has to tell stories about too. Um, you know, I, I guess one way of seeing this is, as you've described, you know, a, a positive story about you now no longer have to account for what you're spending to your bank manager. You know, you can just do it all electronically. But on the other, on the other hand, there's, you know, essentially a new category of people that, you know, the computer, the algorithm is excluding from access to finance or, you know, is, is meaning that, um, financial activity is opaque, invisible, silent, and, and hidden away. Yes, and I think what's interesting in terms of this development, the, the rise of the robot, the increase in the use of algorithms, is, you know, if you look at some of the discussions going on in the media at the moment, we're absolutely certain that these algorithms are going to, are actually replacing white-collar jobs already. I mean, there's no quite, it's not even a future thing. It's happening right now. But interestingly, um, looking at what the financial sector has to say about the jobs that are going to be replaced, they see public relations and marketing as an area of growth at this particular stage. So PR, it seems, is being engaged to promote this you know, shift in customer service in the financial sector, at least for the short term. In a way, what I'm saying is PR is now going to be working for the robot. And this is against the backdrop of, and this is the kind of very last thing you, you, you touch on in the book, of essentially moving, I guess, from trust to risk and risk management. And, you know, as, as you mentioned, you know, kind of telling stories for, for the robots. What, what's the kind of broader um, landscape PR has to, to respond to if we're thinking much more about how do we manage risks rather than our, you know, five forms of, of trust relationship? Well, you're absolutely right. Um, many of the, the new technologies that are being introduced into financial markets at the moment are not just about making finance more efficient and effective, in other words, cutting costs. They're also 
part and parcel of risk management techniques being introduced by operating offices, financial offices, etc. Um, what I find interesting is uh, that corporate and financial PR has become much more concerned about risk management in the post-crisis era. In a way that I suppose they're catching up with with other areas of consulting activity, because risk is something that we've been talking about in great detail for decades. But what's interesting in the post-crisis era is that risk management is now becoming uh, regarded as a more effective tool for management than restoring trust actually is. And I'll explain what I mean. I mean, here we are in 2017, um, Britain has voted for Brexit, and the US has voted for a populist president after a very divisive election campaign and European elections are set to disrupt many traditional political parties. It's already started in France. And this environment, we're seeing people starting to talk about trust yet again. Um, Edelman, for example, issued its annual trust barometer yet again. And I think they've had more coverage for this, this year's issue than they have for any of the previous ones. They've been declaring a loss of trust all over the place. So it's clear that trust uh, remains a credential that the public relations sector wants to hold on to. However, the reality is that the frequency and the severity of recent crises of trust, whether it's in financial markets or other areas of public life, are actually proving to be the undoing of all of these aspiring trust strategists because there is so much short-termism governing uh, public life these days. Uh, the world's democracies have become much more short-termist in their outlook. And many would argue this is because global markets have become much more short-termist in their outlook. The media is much more short-termist than it was, too, in a, in, in a digital era. Uh, we've been talking about fake news now as if it's a new thing. It's not. But it just spreads more efficiently and rapidly, thanks to social media. So what I say at the end of the book is that we're now in an era where there is actually no time to restore trust. So PR advises who have the most to offer are the ones who can talk about how they can manage and mitigate risk. Because with so much access to information these days as members of the public, there are just too many opportunities in, in the public sphere to chip away at our trust in public bodies. So going forward, I think the real skill in the PR industry is probably going to be in managing levels of mistrust, not creating more trust to begin with. And I personally think that you can have perfectly healthy levels of mistrust in society. Uh, this is a view I share with other theorists who believe, believe that there actually is such a thing as too much trust. I think that mistrust is an important part of civilization's checks and balances. And that's certainly how I would like to see the public's relationship with financial markets evolve going forward. So that's a really big question that I think the public relations industry needs to set for itself, whether the real skill that it has to offer going forward is helping organizations and collectives to manage mistrust as a healthy thing. Sounds like the subject of, uh, of another book. Are you, uh, are you going to be kind of doing, <laughs> yes. doing more work on yes. this then? Yeah, well, you know, I, I started looking at financial markets, uh, for doctoral work in 2007, and that turned out to be a very pressing um, 
finance up until that point was very, very boring for some of the people that I was working with at the time. And then we had the credit crunch and all of a sudden, you know, no one could stop talking about it. So it's not something that I could walk away from. Um, you know, as I said, when I was talking about the banking sector, we're 10 years away from the financial crisis. And yet almost every week there's a new scandal involving the financial sector. So absolutely, um, in terms of future work, I am continuing to look at uh, how mistrust, how risk management relate to efforts to, to rebuild trust, to restore it, to create it in the first place. Um, and particularly as all of these changes are going on in different parts of financial markets, as I said, the digitization of the banking sector and the insurance sector, the degree to which we're going to have to be dealing with robots rather than real people, the influence that politics is going to have over state finances are all, you know, they continue to be top of the mind uh, in considering what I'm going to be doing going forward. Fantastic. Thanks for listening to New Books in Political Theory. I've been your host, Dr. Cleo O'Brien. On this episode, I was talking to Cleo Bourne about trust, power and public relations in financial markets.